and welcome to The Lovely Life with Trina McNeely. I'm going to help you learn to love your life, your everyday life. Not the one that you idealize from Instagram or the one that's on the other side of overwhelm, stress, and anxiety. I'm talking about the one that you woke up to today. This is a podcast about learning to live better spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically, no matter what you're going through. Living the lovely life doesn't mean that your life is devoid of pain and problems or that everything looks perfect. Quite the opposite. It's simply learning to find beauty in the midst of the mess and choosing to participate in your life, even when it's not going your way. In this conversational and contemplative podcast, you can expect thoughtful interviews, faith-filled encouragement, and practical tips to help you create space for peace and joy today. So listen in, friend, because together we're going to learn how to make our everyday a little easier, more meaningful, and truly beautiful. Hi, Seth. Welcome to The Lovely Life. Thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to talk with you about your book, which I told you a while back, but I truly mean it is one of the best books that I've read this year. Oh, and thanks. Yeah, for those that aren't familiar, it's called The Book of Waking Up, Experiencing the Divine Love That Reorders a Life. And I'm going to let you share a little bit about the book, give a little bit of background, and then ask a few questions if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. So this book grew out of just some struggles I had with alcohol really years ago. My oldest, who's now nine, or my youngest, sorry, who's now nine, when he was in his first year, he was really struggling with some health issues. And the doctors weren't 100% sure what it was. And Things sort of went from bad to worse, and he was losing weight and not doing super well. And long story short, we were sent to Children's Hospital. And while we were in the hospital, things got really sort of confusing for the doctors, and it just it didn't look well. And so just kind of in the pain of that moment, I made a phone call to a family member and asked her to bring me a bottle of gin to the children's hospital, a Nalgene bottle of gin, actually, to the children's hospital. And that was kind of the day that I decided I didn't want to feel anymore. And I took what was probably a functional drinking problem and turned it into a full-fledged, intentional, just absolute everyday drinking problem because I didn't want to feel anymore. And so that was, yeah, that was, I guess, eight years ago. And for about a year, I drank really heavily. And then about seven years ago, I woke up to the idea, to the notion of the fact that I had a drinking problem at the time. And over the next 90 days of sort of realizing I had a drinking problem, I made some intentional moves to go through therapy, to get to surround myself with a community of people who would hold me accountable. And I just quit drinking. And I journaled my way through that 90 days. And that book, that journal became my first book, which was called Coming Clean. And that book was released Mm -hmm. in 2015, the end of 2015. And after that book, 
It was really just like the first 90 days of understanding sort of what I was wrestling with and how I needed to move forward into sobriety. And after that book was released, I just kept learning and learning and learning and learning. And I came to realize that really a lot of these issues about sobriety and with sobriety have been talked about for ages and ages throughout the Christian tradition and other traditions. And as I learned sort of that older teaching, I just decided that I wanted to kind of like put all that in a book. I wanted to make it a complete sort of circle. And so I set out to write the book of Waking Up, which released in January of this year. And it kind of picks up where Coming Clean left off and and sort of like walks the reader through this idea that sobriety really is about more than drinking or not drinking. Yeah, I love that. I also read your first book, Coming Clean, when that came out. And during that time, I was going through a really broken time in my life with my family of origin that has a history of addiction. And I couldn't quite make sense of it. And it was really helpful for me to read that from a different perspective because I had a lot of um, hurt and pain and anger. And so that book helped me a lot too. And this one in a new kind of way. And I think the word that you talk a lot about this in your book, and I'm hoping you can kind of break this down. But for me, my experience and um, dealing with addictions or coping mechanisms or any of that, it's the word that I don't even know if you can call it synonymous, but that is just coupled with it is pain. Mm -hmm. And whether it's the person, like you said, you didn't want to feel anymore and you wanted to numb that pain because it was so great. And, you know, pain is at the root of addiction for the person that's struggling or numbing the pain. And then there's the people that are affected a lot of times by family members or loved ones that are struggling and numbing the pain. And then there's pain caused in their life. And so pain just seems to be the key here. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know that you have a really cool way in the book where you talk about these, I think, shapes of pain. Yeah. Can yeah. you describe that for us and and how that's yeah. so connected? Yeah. Yeah. So even before we get to the shapes of pain, one of the things that's really important to understand in addiction circles, addiction experts, this is not me, this is others. They talk mm-hmm. about how addictions really, there is a component that's chemical hooks, right? Heroin makes you feel good, so you use heroin, mm-hmm. or alcohol yeah. makes you feel good, so you use alcohol. But really, there it's not just the chemical hooks. There's some other component that creates addiction. Otherwise, everyone who ever mm-hmm. received morphine in the hospital would be a morphine addict, or everyone who ever had a drink of alcohol would be yeah. an alcoholic. And it just doesn't work out that way. And so there's got to be something underneath that sort of primes that addiction. And addiction specialists really all talk about and point to underlying pain. And there's one addiction specialist that Mm -hmm. I really love. His name is Gaber Mate, and he works with heroin abusers and and people in recovery from Mm -hmm. narcotics in the Northwest. And he says that there's really like when you look at when you look at brain scans. Your brain, when you're in emotional pain, 
lights up the same way that it would Mm -hmm. if you like stubbed your toe. And so he says that when somebody talks about feeling emotional pain, they're not being metaphorical or poetic, as he says, but instead they're being very literal. They're being very, very honest. The, The pain is the same. It's the same as cutting yourself, stubbing your toes, hitting your hand with a hammer, whatever the thing is. And so what he says is in time and time again, the people that he works with turn to narcotics to salve the pain, to sort of ease the pain, just like they would if they were coming out of surgery and had pain from an incision in their you know, abdomen or whatever, right? They would turn to narcotics to ease the pain because it works along the same lines. And so he says, the question for the addict is not why the addiction, it's why the pain. And so as he does his counseling, he's constantly trying to get underneath and discover why is that? Why is this user in so much pain? And as I really thought that through in this book, and even before the book, I would I would sort of teach about that at, at different places, seminars or conferences or a church here or there. And people would come up to me time and time again and say, "Well, I hear what you're saying. I understand what Dr. Mate is saying, but I don't really fully appreciate what my pain is. I can't understand my pain." And so I kind of toyed around with several exercises and I could always kind of figure it out. But one day I sat down and said, I'm not a therapist. I'm not an addiction specialist. But if I were guiding someone to sort of get in touch with their pain, how would I do it? And I thought, well, Mm -hmm. maybe if I could create some identifiable shapes of pain, people could then say, oh, yeah, that -hmm. actually puts language to what I feel. And so in the book, I talk about the three shapes of pain, which I say are abuse, loss, and scarcity. Those are the three types of emotional pain. Obviously, there's actual real physical pain. But abuse, loss, and scarcity. And as I look back at my own life, I see scarcity is just running off the charts. It's whenever my son was sick, did I have enough faith? Was God enough to fix the problem? Was there enough medicine? Did the doctors know enough? Could they figure out enough? I mean, it was scarcity, scarcity, scarcity. And as I trace that scarcity pain point in my own life, all the way back, I found that, man, that's been with me since I was a kid. That scarcity mentality, particularly when it came to whether or not God was enough to heal or whether I had enough faith to find healing. I mean, that is the thread that has run throughout my life. So for me, it's scarcity. For others, it's loss. Somebody loses a loved one when they're young, and that loss kind of haunts them for the rest of their lives. And they begin to see everything as kind of reiterating that loss. And abuse is no different. If, If you suffer abuse as a child, that abuse haunts you and haunts and haunts and haunts. And so by identifying the shapes of pain, we can really start to see why do we use what we use to sort of numb those pains. And, and it kind of leads us to be able to begin to, to sort of understand and identify the things that we do use to numb the pains. Mm. Yeah, that's so powerful. When I read your book, the new one, The Book of Waking Up, again, I was searching for answers. My grandmother was an alcoholic. And which I didn't know because, you know, it was the 80s and you didn't talk about those things. And I don't even think my parents really knew. And they put me on a plane to go stay with her for a couple of weeks, like between the fourth and fifth grade. 
And while I was there, somewhere in the middle of that time, I thought everything was fine. I got sent over to my aunt's house and I never went back to my grandma's. And, you know, in those days, you just really didn't explain much to kids and you didn't ask a lot of questions. And I never thought anything of it, really. Yeah. And in my 30s, my grandma was visiting. And at that point, she had been through recovery, but again, I didn't know any of that. And she looked at me, she would come and she was Canadian and very matter of fact, grew up kind of in a British territory. So very proper, very classy lady. And so she would, you know, take me to lunch when she would come to town and be formal, but ask questions and was, she was so wise and interesting. But one time she looked me in the eyes and she told me, you saved my life. And I kind of laughed because I didn't know what she was speaking of. And she <laughs> was super formal and, you know, looking me straight in the eyes and, no, I'm serious. You, you saved my life when you were a little girl. And I had no idea what she meant. And I write a little bit about this in my book, but she said, when you came to visit me, I was at the end. And oh, wow. she was at her rock bottom as, you know, that phrase is used a lot yeah. in addiction and recovery. And she wanted to end her life. And mm. she knew, she said, I looked at your little face and I thought, if I do this, I'm going to ruin her life. Mm. I'll destroy your life if I do this while she's here. And she called my aunt and said, I need help. And that's when I ended up at my aunt's house and my grandma went into recovery. And went through a recovery, I think twice, but this was in her sixties, which, you know, as a kid, I thought she was old. She was my grandma, but that's when her life really began. Mm. And she had this amazing story of becoming a whole person. And much of it had to do with her faith and this reordering. She would love your book, but Mm. she then in turn started helping women and ran a recovery ministry well into her 80s until she just couldn't do it anymore. Mm. And it was just such a beautiful story of redemption. And I never knew kind of my part in that. And then in turn, when my life was kind of turning upside down with other addiction issues in, in my family, it was my grandma who helped me through that. And so I kind of talk about heaven knowing how we need each other and Somehow I was there for her, even though I had no clue what was happening. Yeah. And then she was there for me to walk me through that. And so it's just really a beautiful story, but there was a lot of pain and there's yeah. other yeah. family members that have struggled through addictions and there's, there's been so much pain around it and anger and trying to figure out why and why, why make these choices and trying to understand and then at the same time, you know, then I pick up your book to understand. And as God does, he has me examine my own heart and the yeah. issues <laughs> yep. that I deal with. And although I might have a sibling that struggled with alcohol addiction and has now been sober and clean for years, and it's another beautiful story, and that might not be my exact story, but. I have deep pain and wounds and have found unhealthy coping mechanisms yeah. uh, in my own life. And so it's different for all of us, but it's interesting how when we 
start to search out or to look for answers. There's answers, but it always starts with us and in our hearts. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things that you said that's really important too is a lot of times, and I still do this. I mean, I'm somebody who's wrestled with my own addictions and I still do this. There's there's this tendency when you see somebody who's really struggling with addiction to say, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that to yourself? And mm-hmm. there's a tendency to, to be judgmental, even when you don't want to be. There's a tendency to even mm-hmm. sort of close the door on them, even when you know that's not the right thing to do. And yet we still do that. We all still do that. And I think one of the things that's really helpful to me is just to say there is something underneath this addiction. And that thing underneath the addiction is pain. Mm-hmm. And so what I need to do to mm-hmm. the best of my ability is try to understand the person's pain, to try to empathize with the person's pain, and to try yeah. to lead the person in a way that kind of moves them to get help for the pain. Because there is help for the pain. But you really have to do, mm-hmm. do the work to find that help. It's not a quick fix. Yeah, I I would agree. And it's interesting how that shift can happen. I think for me, there's a lot of grief involved too. You know, sometimes you have to grieve somebody that's still alive and that's really yeah. difficult to do yeah. because they're they're not the person that they were or they're so under the influence of substances. And in doing that, because it is grief, you do you can go through the different stages of grief, so to speak. Yeah, there yeah. there can be anger or denial or all of those things. At least that's kind of been my process. But then you kind of get to a point where you do start to look at what, like you talked about, what what is the pain? And you start to really look at that. And that's kind of been part of my journey too, is to ask the Lord to help me to see what is, because sometimes people, you know, some people in my family have healed and and recognized what the pain is and gone through recovery and have reordered their life and some have not yeah and so sometimes my work has been to kind of pray and ask the lord what could that pain be and what kind of compassion can i have for that but sometimes you go through anger and other emotions before you get to that but i think getting to that point even as the person on the other side shows healing and empathy and, and growth. My people always kind of talk about addiction and I want to ask you this because I have a little bit of information on it with my family and, you know, my grandma's work, which there's so much more research and information that's come out since she began her work years ago. But people talk about addiction being a disease or it's a family disease. And I'm wondering with your expertise and new information, because you talk about it a little differently. And I wonder if you could, in your way, if you can define addiction and is it a disease? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think there's actually, people will say different things about that. I mean, you have some Experts right. that say, yes, addiction is definitely a disease. And in fact, I'm looking at a website right now, Michigan Health, that says, yes, experts say mm-hmm. it is. But then other experts say, well, maybe it's closer to habit formation. In fact, there was a, a Surgeon General, mm-hmm. former Surgeon General Vivek Murtha, Murthy, who said, 
that that actually anything that is habit forming that is deleterious to the body can be seen as an addiction. So it, it's not necessarily mm-hmm. alcohol creating chemical hooks in the body, Murthy might say, but it's anything that mm-hmm. creates sort of this uh, a chemical reaction in the brain that leads you to do the thing over and over yeah. again for habit formation that is definitely or definitively a negative long-term to the body. Now, here's why I don't, I don't like to talk about it in terms of disease. All addictions mm-hmm. operate under sort of the same biological premise, okay? And that is this, that when you, for instance, drink alcohol, certain neurochemicals are released in the brain that calm you down, slow you down, numb your pain. And when that happens, your body then dumps dopamine into the brain to say, hey, this feels good. So anytime you're in pain, let's do this again. Uh, In the same way, and we'll use sex for an example because we're all adults here. After you engage Mm -hmm. in sex, the body releases certain hormones and endorphins and feel-good chemicals in the brain. And when that happens, the body, the brain also Mm -hmm. releases dopamine into the brain that says, hey, this was really good. Let's do this again. And the same is true of eating. When you eat, you're hungry, your tummy is rumbling, and you stuff your face with something that feels really good or that satiates your hunger. Your body drops dopamine again into the brain and says, hey, this feels really good. You satiated your hunger in this way. You stopped sort of this pain. And so here's the dopamine to remind you that, hey, this feels good. Let's do this again. So the next time you get hungry or the next time that you're in any sort of pain or whatever, the dopamine, a small amount of dopamine hits the brain and says, hey, remember that time we cured the pain by doing X, Y, or Z? Let's do that again. And then before you're reaching for the bottle or you're reaching for the computer or you're reaching for the sandwich or the Oreo cookie or whatever, and you're trying to sort of solve that pain again by, you know, engaging in these behaviors. Well, well, here's what I would say about this. This is why I don't like the disease moniker. God made our brains to operate that way. He made our brains to remind us that certain things feel good. They are pleasurable. And so pleasure's not bad. Mm-hmm. Let's go do some pleasure, you know? And this isn't innately yeah. a negative thing. It's when you eat a bag of Oreos and you have a massive dopamine uh, dump, your brain was meant to do that, right? So is that disease? Well, I mean, your brain's actually functioning the way it was created to function. So no, it wasn't. In fact, I would argue that if there's any disease in it at all, it's the disease of those who created these, these hyper-saturated sugar and fatty cookies to create chemical you know, reactions in your brain that were never supposed to happen uh, to that extent. I would argue that the real disease maybe is the people who are producing the porn that we're addicted to because they're feeding us with images that we were never able to get years ago that the body was not created and designed to withstand. And our brain is actually operating the way it was designed to operate based on this sort of amplified signal from a very sick market economy. And I could say the same thing about any number of things, about alcohol, about social media. Like our brain was connect, was designed yeah. for connection. So when you and I are talking, 
in my brain right now, uh, it's saying, hey, this is a really good conversation. There's some real connection happening here. Here's some dopamine to remind yourself that connecting with other people is actually a very good thing, right? But then when I get on Twitter and all of a sudden I can connect with 5,000 people at any one given time and they can all like my stuff and they can all respond to my stuff and I can be the center of everyone's universe. Well, our brains were never designed to withstand that kind of stimulus. And so this, this continual doping, doping of dopamine in our brains by people who know exactly what they're doing. I mean, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all these platforms, they've coded yeah. the platforms yeah. to keep us in this continual dopamine loop. And so, again, if there's any disease, it's the disease of, of those who are, are trying to use our brains against us to create addiction. So I know that's not a super scientific answer, and scientists may disagree with me, but I would say regardless of whether mm -hmm. addiction is disease or whether it's habit, some argue that it's habit, mostly that's philosophers and theologians, which yeah. I kind of disagree with that too. Uh, regardless of what you call it, whether it's habit or whether it's disease, at the end of the day, it is the body's attempt to silence pain by using pleasure. And as Mary Carr wrote, as she's a poet from Syracuse, she's from Texas, but she teaches at Syracuse. She's an amazing poet, amazing writer. And she writes in her book called Lit, which is about her sort of coming out of alcoholism and into uh, the Catholic Church and into faith from atheism. She writes, we were not meant to wallow in pleasure. Pleasure is joy's assassin. Mm. And so she, she says what so mm. many addicts know, which is when we are in pain and there is no joy, we turn to pleasure in an effort to silence the pain. But in returning to pleasure over and over and again, we're actually short changing ourselves because we'll never actually get to full joy. I could think about that for a while, like just sit and process that. There's, there's so much to that. Wow. Yeah. That's, and, and I mean, just to, like the idea of getting to joy, like that's ultimately what we want. Ultimately we don't want just pleasure for a night or pleasure for an afternoon when my mm -hmm. child was so sick. I, I didn't want to just like feel good for three hours at the end of every day or four hours at the end of every day till I could pass out and go to sleep. What I wanted was relief. I wanted mm -hmm. full relief. I wanted full joy and full relief and full relief from the pain. And I wanted to know that mm -hmm. regardless of what happened, there was going to be healing. There was going to be joy and wallowing in that just despair and drinking and drinking and drinking. It never got me there. And do you think sometimes, I I don't know if this is just an American thing, but it sometimes we think, I mean, some to some extent, pain and loss and stress, all of those things are normal parts of life that we have to experience. And do you think that for some, we're just wanting or needing to escape that at all times like how do you how do you come to that place of realizing these are some things that I am going to have to experience and feel and walk through in a healthy manner but that doesn't mean that it's you know mutually exclusive from joy joy is yeah. still possible even even when we go through trials like joy is possible yeah 
There's one thing that is certain in life. People say death and taxes. So those are the things that are certain in life. And right. it's kind of funny when you think about it, but like both of those are experiences of pain. When my tax bill comes due and I have to write a check, that for me is triggering on all my scarcity complexes, right? Is there enough money this year to pay my taxes as a self-employed right. person? Is there, is there enough after I pay my taxes to feed my family? Mm-hmm. You know, yada, yada, whatever the thing is. It's always an experience of pain. And what is death but the ultimate culmination of pain? And so if there's one thing that's actually certain in life, it's that we will all have pain. Pain is our reality. And you can't escape it. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. And in this pandemic, what is certain but pain? And we're all locked up. We were talking about this before we started recording. You know, our kids are missing sports seasons, which may seem trivial in your 40s. But going back when I was 16, 17, 18, I mean, that would have been devastating. Yeah. Social circles are disrupted for all of us. Some of us have had business closures. I mean, everything in life right now is a pain. And as we record this, we're coming out of an election season that is, has been absolutely painful for the majority of the country, regardless of yeah. what side of the political spectrum you're on. We've endured racial tensions right. this year that have been painful for everyone, and particularly our friends of color. And so when we look at the world mm-hmm. around us, like it will produce pain. But there is a purpose in pain, I think, and I think that purpose is to point us to the areas where healing is needed, where healing is necessary, and ultimately to draw us to the place where we can say, God, we know you want to bring healing to the world. That was the whole point of, of the, the scriptures, is that healing is coming. Yeah. Healing has come. And so when we feel the pain, the idea isn't to turn to booze or gambling or shopping Uh, or eating or whatever to kill the pain. The idea is to turn to God and to say, I have seen, I am seeing a place that needs healing. And I want you to connect with me in that healing. Please connect with me in that healing. And I'm going to pray for healing. I'm going to take on the pain as a way to direct me back to God. As the psalmist says, the place from where our help comes. Yeah. I love how you say that pain is an invitation. and when you can frame it like that, when you look at it like that, it really opens the door to healing. And I know that I've experienced that in my life, accepting pain as an invitation. What am I going to, what am I going to do with this? It either can destroy me or I can be rebuilt and kind of have a rebirth from it because of Christ's love. Yeah. I wonder, coping mechanisms is kind of a buzzword, I feel like. And you talked about habits. You also mentioned affections, attachments, and then dependence. Can you talk a little bit about coping mechanisms? I know for me, when I read your book, like I said, I wasn't solely reading it to, you know, like to read it for someone else. I was truly trying to gain more information. And like I said, it was kind of like, oh, take the speck out of your own eye. (laughs) And um, like, I know I've known kind of what my unhealthy 
habits and coping mechanisms are, which are ordering things online. Yeah. You talk about the whiz bang, which I love, but you know, it is a dopamine surge. Mine is a really embarrassing one is I like to go to McDonald's and I I know why, (laughs) because when my, when I was little, my mom would take us to McDonald's. Yeah. Before McDonald's was a dirty word, after the dentist or the doctor, oh, that was hard. Let's go to McDonald's and get a happy meal. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think it's called a happy meal for a reason. Yeah. And it formed this like lifelong habit. And I'm not kidding. Like when things get really hard for me, I kind of joke too and say, McDonald's is my cigarettes. (laughs) But like if I'm super stressed out, then I literally will fill this like magnetized hole to go through the drive through just get a, you know, cheeseburger, small fry and a Coke. That's, that's it for me, which I'm not doing this like daily, but I've had to look at that and say, huh. And and then after, you know, I eat it, it feels good for a second. And then it's like gut rot, but, but that's kind of a coping mechanism for me. And it's silly, but I've had to say, okay, well, I kind of do enjoy a hamburger, fry and Coke every now and again, but I'm going to try to go when I'm not feeling depressed or you know, in a form of desperation. Like I'm just going to go because it sounds good today or I just want it. And so I'm trying to kind of change that coping mechanism and that habit in my life. So if you see me Instagramming with French fries and don't don't (laughs) assume it's a bad thing, (laughs) it might be, I'm working on it. I'll try not to. But yeah. So anyways, that's something for me, but I, I feel like it's such a buzzword. And how do we know when something's a coping mechanism or when it might be crossing? I don't even know if crossing over is a word, but if it's something we we really, that might be getting out of control in our life that we're totally dependent upon. Yeah. I think there are a couple of things. One, and one you identified, which is when you feel bad, what is the thing that you turn to? Mm-hmm. So you've heard the the HALT acronym before when you're, you know, hung, hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. You know, those are your pain points. Like when you're hungry, angry, mm-hmm. lonely, or t- tired, what do you reach for? And I can tell you, like, when I'm hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, there's nothing that I want more than a three-hour-long documentary and an entire box of Cinnamon Toast Crunch. It's just my go-to. And there's a reason for that too. Like when I go back to yeah. my childhood, when I think about my my safest places, it was with my grandparents. I loved being with my grandparents. And not that my home wasn't a safe mm-hmm. place. It totally was. But like being with my grandparents in Louisiana, they had a home on the bayou. We would sit on the back porch and we would watch the mallards come in in the, in the evenings and I would, you know, stay up late and watch X-Files with my grandma and eat cereal with her. And it's just a a memory of like sitting and watching TV and having cereal and being completely at ease and completely comfortable. So when I'm at dis-ease, what do I reach for? But those things that remind me of my happy place as a child. And it's the same for you. When you described going and getting Mm -hmm. a happy meal as a kid, when you were unhappy, your mom would take you to get a happy meal. And, there, you know, there are certainly connotations to those words, you know, those that happiness was marketed to you and it was chemical. And so, of course, you're going to go for it. Of course, you're going to form that lifelong bond. There are any number of coping mechanisms. And for me, I find that addiction can be used as such a dirty word, like, and it can be used mm-hmm. as such an othering word. So a lot of times you'll hear preachers talk about addiction, 
and this is no knock on preachers or priests, but I hear it all the time. And they're really always talking about drugs, alcohol, and sex. That's what they're talking about. You know, I grew up in a tradition where mm-hmm. you could other people by calling them addicts, but you could be grossly obese and not have a second thought about it in the world. And, and, and that's not a, to, to body shame anybody or to, or to say that there's anything necessarily innately wrong with, with overweightness, but the way I was raised, you could be an absolute glutton and no one would say, hey, is that a coping mechanism or is that an addiction? Instead, they would just turn and point to, oh, well, you know, Ted, he used to come around a lot, but now he's an alcoholic. Well, that's a completely othering way to use mm-hmm. the terms addiction. And so what I think to me is more helpful is to say when we're, when we're experiencing pain, is there something that we reach for to make us feel better? And if that thing is a knee-jerk reaction, if we constantly reach for it, anytime we feel pain, and as Murthy says, Dr. Murthy said, is it leading to long-term deleterious consequences, then we need to begin to imagine it as an addiction, as a coping mechanism. We need to like level the playing field and say, it's not just the alcoholics, the drug addicts, and the porn addicts who are addicts who use coping mechanisms to deal with pain. We need to stop and say, what are the things that we're attaching to that, that disrupt mm-hmm. us from taking our pain to God? And that's really the whole idea behind the book of Waking Up is to say, you know, the, 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 the point is not who's an addict and who's not an addict. The, the point really is, are mm-hmm. you using anything to cure the pain instead of turning to God mm-hmm. in the pain? Instead of waking to your pain, mm-hmm. turning to God in that wakefulness and saying, would you please be with me here in this pain? Whether it's the pain of, of hunger or anger or loneliness or tiredness or, you know, you've stayed up too late at night and now you have your computer and it, you, you're bored and you don't want to go to sleep. So you just click, 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 click and fill your Amazon shopping cart yeah. and maybe don't even buy it. Mm-hmm. Maybe you just purge it when it's all over. But it's just mm-hmm. another form of binging and purging and the loneliness and the tiredness. So, so the question that I keep coming back to for me for my own life and for those who I talk to is like, what are the things that we are asleep to that we use to help us sleep Mm -hmm. to the pains of life? And how do we, you know, find a way of waking, a way of saying, okay, I see the pain. I see the thing I'm using to coping with the pain and I'm going to put that aside for a while and seek to attach to God who can cure the pain. And what are some practical ways in our everyday life that we can reorder those attachments or affections and attach to God and and to this divine love. Yeah. So I, you know, I talk about in the book, the various ways that we can sort of do that. I mean, again, remember that everything that is beneficial for the body, it works on brain chemistry. It releases feel good chemicals. And so there are some things that we can do Mm -hmm. just frankly to like, get that same sort of of rush that doesn't tend to be maybe that's healthy, that doesn't lead to long-term deleterious consequences. Maybe that's the way to put it, right? So there are some just very practical things you can do. You know, exercise 
when you feel the tug, the pain, instead of turning to one of these deleterious vices, go take a walk or go run or sit and do uh, med- meditate. There, so there are some just like practical mm-hmm. physical things that we can do to wake to the pain and to not turn to the vices. But obviously I'm a Christian. And so for me and for you and for others, many listening to the podcast, there are spiritual practices that uh, help us understand that our primary attachment should not be to the vice, to the coping mechanism, but our primary attachment when we're in pain should be mm-hmm. to God. And this is actually what some of the great ancient writers wrote about this idea of attachment first to God, of ordering your attachment so that it's always God first and that anything else that you use is only used to the extent that it continues to connect you with God. So to that end, when we're talking about this sort of waking way of sobriety, I tell people, make sure that you have an earnest prayer life. I'm not saying a perfect one. It doesn't have to be one hour a day. I don't expect anyone here to be a monk uh, unless you're listening and you are a monk, in which case go for it. Uh, but, but like have a robust prayer life, a prayer life that connects you every day with God several times a day. It can be as you go. It can be set on your alarm. I mean, it could be three, four times a day. If you want to pray on certain hours, that's fine. But just like do things that connect you in prayer with God. And that connection allows us, it reminds us to constantly bring, be bringing our pain to him. God, I'm hungry. I'm angry. I'm lonely. I'm tired. Be with me in this pain. Provide a way out for me mm-hmm. in this pain. Speak encouragement to me in this pain. So that, that's one way. The second way is to participate in what I call the community of waking, which is, is the church. And so in Ephesians 5, when, when mm-hmm. you read that passage, Paul is writing and he says, don't be drunk on wine or addicted to much wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, singing to one another with hymns and spiritual hymns and songs and yada, yada. It's the weirdest passage in the entire Bible. Like, hey, instead of being drunk, <laughs> go sing to each other. So crazy. But what I think yeah. he's getting at, and I can't prove this because I'm not Paul and I'm not really a biblical scholar, but what I think he's getting at is, hey, drunkenness, that's a thing you do in the dark. That's a thing you do in secret for the most part. Like this is, is not wow. something to be proud of. And those are are sins of isolation because the community of faith is not okay with that, right? Holiness is not okay with that, according Mm -hmm. to the early Christians. So those are sins of isolation. Instead of engaging in isolation, then move into the community of faith. Be a part of the community of faith where we encourage each other, where we sing to one another. And does this mean that when you encourage each other, when you sing to one another, you won't be drinking? Well, not necessarily. I'm not here to espouse a view of Mm -hmm. sobriety that says we don't drink at all ever. And in fact, in my tradition, pre-COVID, we did drink together Mm -hmm. because in the community, uh, at every gathering, we partake in the Eucharist, which is bread and wine. Mm -hmm. And so for me to Mm -hmm. say, I'm never going to drink wine again, means I'm never going to partake in the Eucharist, which is the primary feast of the waking community. And so engage in prayer, engage in the waking community, engage in the waking meal, you know, the Eucharist. And, and if you're in a liturgical tradition, that mm-hmm. looks like the actual Eucharist. If you're in a non-liturgical tradition, it may look like 
grape juice and crackers or, or whatever the thing is. But as you go to right. that table, yeah. remember that like God made the good things of earth, mm-hmm. grain, grapes. He made them for our good. And he actually instituted the physical, tangible stuff of earth, stuff that we can be addicted to, wine and bread. He created that and instituted it in a way that would actually lead us into connection with him. That's pretty astounding when you stop mm-hmm. and think about it. So engage yeah. in prayer, engage in the waking community, uh, sing the waking songs together in the community, engage in the waking meal. And if you'll do these things regularly, particularly when there's a moment of pain, when there's a moment of pain, reach out to someone in your community mm-hmm. faith. When there's a moment of pain, see if there's a service that you can attend and, and take the Eucharist or, or see if there's a service that you can attend and engage in communion. Or call some friends if you're of the non-liturgical variety and have this communion moment. If you'll do those things when the pain comes, yeah. you'll find avenues to wake up and to exit addictions and compulsions. And you won't always do it perfectly. Like you're bound to relapse because you're human. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. But yeah. the goal here is really yeah. incrementally waking up a little bit more every day and being connected with God a little bit more every day. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And I think it's so interesting if we look at Jesus when he was on this earth, he was not immune to pain. And when he was in his deepest pain and anguish, the things you just spoke of were the things that he did. He prayed in the garden to the point of sweating blood. He had the last supper um, with his community and shared the Eucharist. And so that really points us in the direction that we're to go. I think that's just really beautiful. And there's something powerful too in knowing that we do have this savior that was not unlike us, that he experienced pain, every type of pain it talks about in Hebrews, um, that he empathizes with our weakness and he knows our suffering. And just knowing that when we're in that pain, that he's sitting there with us in it, that's really something too, because pain can be, you feel so lonely in it. And I think that's a beautiful thing to remember and then to practice as he did and all that you just described. That's so beautiful. If someone's listening and they're recognizing that they might need help, that they are at the bottom, things are out of control, that their affections or dependence are out of order and it's, it's gotten out of control, what would you recommend that they do? Yeah, I mean, first of all, tell the person in your life that's closest to you. So if that's, you know, your your spouse, mm-hmm. if that's a partner, if that's a best friend, whoever that is, whomever that is, yeah. just make sure that you out yourself. Like I always tell people, it's just best to out yourself. And that's also often mm-hmm. scary, but if the person is trustworthy and loving and in your life for good reason, they'll be your biggest support. So I would always say like, first find a a very close trusted friend and talk to that friend. The second thing I would say is go to therapy. I think a lot of people, their knee jerk is to turn to to pastors and priests. And that's, that's also good. And you need to do that. We'll talk about that in a second, but particularly in COVID, the pain is so acute and it's so dark that a lot of pastors and priests don't hundred percent know how to help you navigate through it 
uh, therapeutically. And on top of that, they're, they're dealing with, you know, many, many congregants and parishioners who are, are sort of struggling with pain too. And this isn't just me like making stuff up. I've actually had pastors tell me, thank you for saying that because I just mm-hmm. literally can't carry mm-hmm. all of the pain in my church. So, so go to a therapist, find a good therapist. You may, you know, need to go through two or three sessions before you know if it's a fit. And if it's not a fit, find another one. Find a good therapist mm-hmm. that can really help you understand uh, the pain of your life. I've had people uh, tell me that Christian therapists have saved their lives and non-Christian therapists have saved their lives. I really don't even care if they're of faith or not of faith. Just find a good therapist. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing I would say mm-hmm. is really do find a spiritual advisor who can help you walk through the spiritual component of it because the therapist is really is really designed to help you deal with the emotional human experience of it. And, and the pastor or priest is really, or spiritual director, is really meant to help you sort of wade through the spiritual connection piece of it. But we are whole people. We are body and spirit. So make sure that yeah. you're surrounded um, by people who can help you understand the body aspects of it and the spiritual aspects of it. And that'll come around you to support you. So that's that's how I always recommend starting. And then if AA is good for you or NA is good for you or SA or any of those anonymous sort of 12-step programs, if that's a thing that'll help you make it through just the beginning days and, and on into later years of sobriety, then then I would recommend that too. It's, you know, they've helped a lot of people find lasting recovery. But I will say typically... Mm-hmm that can't be a standalone option because the success rates in 12-step programs aren't nearly as high as we would think. And the reason for that is that Mm. it can't be a fix-all, a cure-all if you don't do the hard work of actually healing the pain. That's so helpful. Thank you. I have a few questions I close with every guest about their everyday lives. If you don't mind, kind of a rapid fire, three questions. So. (laughs) <laughs> What's one thing that makes your everyday life easier? Oh, that's great. Habits. Good having good a good rhythm of habits. And I'll tell you, my life has been less easy since COVID because my habits have been so disrupted and I haven't really found my rhythm yet. <laughs> but prior to COVID, I had the same morning ritual every day for over well over a year. And it was so automatic that my day just really clicked. But I'm kind of trying to find that again now, and I'm close, but I'm not quite. I'm not quite there yet. But yeah, I, I definitely have the same lunchtime ritual, which is I go to Chick Fil A and get a salad. Which I know that sounds like a really weird part of my ritual, but it is probably four days a week. <laughs> I go to Chick Fil A, I get a salad, I go back to my desk, and I sit down and I just kind of write thoughts. And whatever for whatever reason that mm-hmm. that sort of has become like a decompression ritual that really makes my my life a lot easier right now. Yeah. Do you get the same salad every time? I do. It's the market salad with the light vinaigrette. I, <laughs> it, and it's not a great salad. I just, I, I just eat it. Yeah. I love it. I love rituals. There's something really soothing about them and it does make life a little easier sometimes when we yep. eliminate totally. some choices and have a routine or a ritual. Yes. Okay. And what makes your everyday life meaningful? Probably my wife is, I know that sounds so cheesy and probably everybody says that, but when I keep sort of Amber in the forefront of my mind, it really does infuse uh, meaning to everything I 
do, all the work that I do, sort of all the things I think about, all the art I create. So yeah, I try to keep her in mind because she she helps me find meaning. Aww. And she's your muse. <laughs> she's she awesome. She is. I, she she is really awesome. Okay. One then lastly, one thing that's helped you make progress in your life. And it could be your spiritual life, physical, mental, or emotional life. Uh, yeah, this is kind of a, helps you make progress. It's kind of a meta answer, but being surrounded by really good people. In fact, after we wrap this podcast, yeah. I'm sitting down with a friend to help me really just sort of sort through some problems and just be a sounding board. I say problems. It's like a business issue. It's not that big of a deal, but just surrounding mm-hmm. my people, myself with people who, who push me to be a better version of myself. That's wonderful. Well, I so appreciate you being here. I want to mention again that Seth's most recent book is The Book of Waking Up, which we've spoken about today. And his book before that is Coming Clean, and I cannot recommend them enough. They are brilliant. The writing is amazing. I'm such a picky reader. He is kind of a poet. And there is depth of information and depth of heart there too. So I will link to that in the show notes, but please grab a copy of the book of Waking Up. Thanks for being with us today, Seth. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Lovely Life. If you love what you hear on this podcast and want other people to know that their everyday life can be beautiful and meaningful, then I want you to leave a five-star review and take a moment to subscribe to this podcast. Did you know that we have an online community where we continue the discussion and cheer each other on? I want to personally invite you to join. Simply go to facebook.com slash groups slash lovely life community. For show notes and to subscribe to episode emails, visit trinamcneely.com slash podcast. Until next time, friends, here's to leaving behind perfect and learning to live better.